Wednesday, August 7th, 2019. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. This is the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. It is good to be back. Many thanks to the city of Portland, Oregon for hosting the Oregon Brewery Festival while I was at home. Tasty. And Hump Tulips, Washington. That place will always be in my heart. It will always be my home. It was great seeing all of my family. But it was time to get back to the Beltway and get back to work. Since I've been gone, you guys have been busy. You guys have sent me some great feedback from the last three episodes. And I'm going to tell you, some of you are some loyal listeners. A lot of emails tell me that you liked, appreciated, and want more shows after the show. Shows. And I will do my best to deliver. They may not be every week, but definitely let me know and email me at podcast at va.gov when you catch one. Some reviews came in as well while I was gone. This one is from Twin Daddy 5 I think I've gotten a Twin Daddy before. And if it's the same person, thank you for continuing to write in. Twin Daddy 5 says, after the show show, I listen to the after show and hope you do more of them. I would like to hear more about what happened after the mattress incident. Keep up the good work. CBs can do. Hoo-yah. Definitely got Twin Daddy because you, you talked about um, after the um, the Pennington episode you, you wrote in because I remember the CBs. I also would have liked to have heard more about the mattress incident. Um, he's referring to the after the show show from the last benefits breakdown. Twin Daddy, thank you for the review. This next one is from Halix Sinister. Sounds like a mix of Harry Potter and Marvel. Halleck Sinister writes in, For the vets and those who care. Started listening to this a little while back and have started working my way through the back catalog. Over 150 podcasts. Presented professionally, this is a for veterans, by which I mean U.S. military veterans, and by veterans, about veterans, and veteran issues. Worth a listen? I think. What more can I say? There are podcasts one listens to for entertainment, one that one listens to for news, and one to listen to for thoughtful consideration of a weighty issue. This podcast seems to touch all of those. I haven't listened to all of them yet, but I've listened to about half a dozen of them thus far, the most recent ones, and I intend to listen to the rest, time permitting. Give it a try. I think you'll find it interesting. Halix, I really appreciate your dedication. Thank you for your listenership and how much you advocated for this podcast on that review. And I'm honored to keep bringing you more. And I hope that I can also touch uh, non-U.S. military veterans as well. Um, of course, this this is, you're right, this is a U.S. military veteran podcast. But I really hope uh, other veterans in other countries get uh, get something out of this as well. And this last review is from Yearbird. What year is the bird? I don't know. Great education for non-veterans. I have listened since episode one because I run a legal clinic for veterans, but am not a veteran myself. I've learned so much about military and veteran culture and the many resources available. I miss Tim, but Tanner's doing a great job making the podcast his own. Thank you very much, your bird. Um, as the only other Marine Corps veteran that was physically in the shop, I miss Tim as well. And if our schedules line up, I hope to catch up with him very soon. And also thank you for what you do for veterans 
running a legal clinic. I actually have an episode with a veteran that is doing legal work for veterans in a future episode. And I hope you listen in. So I've counted since I've been gone and we are up to 60 ratings, 32 reviews for a grand total, ladies and gentlemen, of 92 ratings and reviews. We are only eight away. We are only eight ratings and reviews away from the episode that I've been talking about for about five months now. That is Air Force veteran. Good morning, Vietnam! The late Adrian Cronauer, who Robin Williams played in Good Morning Vietnam, interviewing the one, the only comedian, actor, producer, and Army veteran, Mel Brooks. Now, admittedly, this episode is shorter than my normal episodes. It's a bonus, and I didn't produce it. But it has never been released. And when we get to 100, which I mean, man, we're so close. I can't wait to air it as a bonus episode of Born the Battle. Man, there have been a lot of news releases since I've been gone. So let's get right into it. Let's get right into what the VA has been up to while I was gone. This first one says, for immediate release, VA achieves critical milestone in its electronic health record modernization program. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recently transferred the health records of 23.5 million veterans to a Cerner Corporation data center, setting the stage for the records to be processed this summer in support of VA and the Department of Defense's common electronic health record solution. This initial data migration phase of the VA's electronic health record modernization which began in late spring, is an important milestone reflecting the decision to replace the Veterans Information Systems and Technology Architecture, VISTA, with the Cerner Millennium EHR solution that currently powers DOD's military health system, otherwise known as Genesis. And there's a, there's a quote by our Secretary Robert Wilkie, and then it says, To date, over 78 billion records, with a B, have been compiled from all VA medical centers, accounting for 50 terabytes of data storage across 21 clinical areas of patient health records, which includes lab results, pharmacy prescriptions, inpatient and outpatient diagnoses and procedures, and other medical data of both living and deceased veterans. New data will move into the Cerner system automatically from Vista and near real time and then make its way to the Cerner Millennium EHR. I don't know what EHR is. It's just the acronym that's on the news release, which will provide shared access with VA, DOD, and community care providers. As future phases are completed, service members' medical records from their years of active duty will reside in one comprehensive, oh, I get it, EHR stands for Electronic Health Record. This modernization effort moves VA one step closer to achieving an interoperable EHR system that will improve military career transitions and drive better clinical outcomes. For more information about VA's electronic health record modernization, visit www.ehrm.va.gov. I remember scanning SRB's uh, service record books as an admin Marine during my first enlistment, and I would strongly dislike to be the one to modernize any record system. Um, I think the most important takeaway from this is that the DOD and the VA communities will now be in one system and hopefully future generations won't have to deal with printing out your entire DOD health record just to turn around and hand it to the VA to scan it in. 
I still have that stack and we'll probably never get rid of it. Okay, the next one is kind of sci-fi-ish. It's kind of weird, um, but we're going to get right into it. All right, it says for immediate release, VA DeepMind, DeepMind, developed machine learning system to predict life-threatening disease before it appears. This kind of sounds like the minority report of health. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, in partnership with DeepMind Health, published results in a July 31 edition of Nature on the development of an artificial intelligence system that can forecast a deadly kidney disease in advance. In advance. In keeping with VA's efforts to help improve the lives of veterans through research and innovation, the breakthrough findings shows the model developed by researchers can predict the presence of acute kidney injury, AKI, in patients up to 48 hours in advance, which could help doctors determine treatment options to prevent further deterioration of the kidney. All right, so it's not like years in advance, it's 48 hours, so... Little minority report. It's not like it, but not like not too creepy. AKI is notoriously difficult for doctors and nurses to detect. When it occurs, patients often deteriorate very quickly. The AA model permitted identification of over 90% of the most severe acute kidney injury cases 48 hours sooner than with usual care. That early detection permits improved medical care that can reduce progression to serious consequences, such as need for dialysis. Then there is, um, I'm actually going to read this one. These are exciting times for research and innovation at VA, said Secretary Robert Wilkie. Studies like this can have significant effect in not only the veteran community, but people throughout the nation. Moving forward, the VA Palo Alto Healthcare System in California will be exploring ways to bring these advances into clinical use. The work leading up to this clinical trial, okay, so it's still in trial phase, involves complex interdisciplinary coordination to build and integrate a user-friendly platform to assist clinicians with treatment decisions. Leveraging the latest developments in AI technology is another innovation in healthcare that VA leadership is using to empower clinicians with timely, actionable data that improves the lives of veterans. For more information regarding the VA's Office and Research and Development and AKI, Visit www.research.va.gov forward slash topics forward slash kidney underscore disease dot CFM. Still sounds like some minor report stuff. All right. And the next one for immediate release, VA announces upcoming awards of more than 400 million in grants to help veterans who are homeless or at risk of homelessness. Thousands of low-income veterans and their eligible family members will continue to have access to crucial homelessness services as a result of the $426 million in grants to be awarded under the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Supportive Services for Veteran Families Program, otherwise known as SSVF. Sounds like a future benefits breakdown. This funding includes $62 million in new SSVF awards that support outreach case management, and other flexible assistance to rapidly rehouse veterans who become homeless or prevent veterans from becoming homeless. The grants will be awarded to 271 nonprofit organizations in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, Guam, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. A list of applicants who will be awarded grants is available at www.va.gov forward slash homeless forward slash SSVF.ASP. 
Then it goes on. It says, in addition to conducting outreach and case management, grantees will assist eligible veterans and their families with obtaining VA and other benefits such as health care, fiduciary payee, financial planning, child care, legal, transportation, housing counseling, and other services. Grantees are expected to leverage SSVF grants to enhance the housing stability of very low-income veterans and their families. That's awesome. And doing so, grantees are required to establish relationships with local community resources. Got to work together. In fiscal year 2018, SSVF grantees served 125,878 participants, including 82,664 veterans and 25,942 children. As a result of these and other efforts, the number of homeless veterans has been cut in half since the launch of the Federal Strategic Plan to Prevent and End Homelessness in 2010. Since 2010, hundreds of thousands of veterans and their family members have been placed into permanent housing or avoided becoming homeless through VA's homelessness programs and targeted housing vouchers provided by the Department of Housing and Urban Development. The applicants whom grants will be awarded completed under a notice of fund availability published December 19, 2018, available at www.va.gov forward slash homeless forward slash SSVF forward slash docs, D-O-C-S, forward slash S-S-V-F underscore N-O-F-A underscore publication underscore 2018 underscore 27465 PDF. And of course, I'll bring all these in the show notes at the blog at blogs.va.gov. The funding will support SSVF services in fiscal year 2020, which covers October 1, 2019 to September 30th, 2020. The program is authorized by the 38 United States Code 2044. VA implements the program by regulations in 38 CFR Part 62. Visit www.va.gov forward slash homeless forward slash SSVF.asp to learn more about the SSVF program. I think I'm going to pay that website a visit, and I think that that will be a future Born the Battle Benefits Breakdown. Actually, I know that will be a future Born the Battle Benefits Breakdown. Okay, and the last one, and I don't know how, and I don't think that there's enough press on this. The VA has cured a disease. So cool. For immediate release, VA has cured... 100,000 veterans of hepatitis C. As World Hepatitis Day is marked nationwide this week, the Department of Veterans Affairs has reached a significant milestone, having cured more than 100 cured cured folks, more than 100,000 veterans of chronic hepatitis C virus infection, establishing VA as the global leader in the diagnosis and treatment of hepatitis C, otherwise known as H CV, and that's how I'll, I'll refer to it now on. HCV infection can lead to the advanced liver disease, liver cancer, and early death. Curing hepatitis C can prevent the development or progression of ALD, cutting death rates by up to 50%. Until recently, hepatitis C treatment required medications to be taken daily by mouth and weekly by injection for up to a year, with cure rates as low as 35%. Additionally, this treatment had disabling medical and psychiatric side effects, which caused over half of patients to stop treatment prematurely. They just lived with it. 
there's then a quote by Secretary Wilkie, and then it goes on. It says, in early 2014, highly effective, less toxic, all oral, direct acting antivirals became available for hepatitis C treatment. These new drugs have few and less severe side effects and can be given as one pill a day for as little as eight weeks, revolutionizing hepatitis C treatment. The VA adopted use of these new medications within days of FDA approval. Through veteran advocacy, VA leadership, and the support of Congress, VA implemented an aggressive program to treat veterans with hepatitis C who are both willing and able to be treated. This included extensive outreach to all veterans in VA known to have the hepatitis C infection and increased testing of those at the highest risk for hepatitis C. At the end of 2018, almost 85% of veterans at increased risk for hepatitis C have been tested compared to 50% for the general U.S. population. At the peak of this effort to rapidly deploy these direct-acting antivirals, VA was starting a veteran on hepatitis C treatment every 72 seconds on a typical workday, a rate of almost 2,000 new treatments a week. Currently, fewer than 25,000 veterans in VA care remain to be treated. For more information, visit www.hepatitis.va.gov. Again, I don't know how there isn't more press on this news. I mean, the VA is curing a disease. That's just something you don't see. It's usually that's usually something created by some huge corporation and they charge you stupid amounts of money for it. VA is curing hepatitis C. That's pretty darn cool. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this week's interview is a good one. She's an Army veteran who received her bachelor's degree in occupational therapy from East Carolina University after serving six years on active duty. After that, she operated her own private practice in Orlando, Florida for over 20 years specializing in sensory integration and pediatrics. Wanting to give back to veterans, she then pursued a career with the VA. And in 2009, she began working at the VA, specializing in spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury. Since she has been at the VA, in 2010, she developed the Assistive Technology Program, which is a really, really great program, seen it firsthand. So... Without further ado, I give to you Army veteran Ursula Draper. Enjoy. Um, Army veteran, correct? Correct. What compelled you to join the service? I think it goes back to probably when I was eight or nine years old, and um, a lot of my brother's friends were in Vietnam, and I had written to them many, many times and struck up kind of a pen pal relationship with them. And I was just so moved, even as a little girl, about these men giving up their lives and, and providing this service to our country. So when I was 16, I went down to the recruiting station and I went to every service to the Navy, Marines, Air Force and the Army. And everyone except the Army said, now, now, little girl, you just go home and come back later. 
And really? the army, yes. <laughs> and the army was the only one that took the time to explain to me what it would be about, how the whole process would work. And I was just really sincere in serving my country. I was bound and determined I was going to give something back to my country. And I think it stemmed from all those letters that were written back and forth. Got you. So when you were 16, so I don't know, what was 1980s, 1990s? About, about what, Actually, about what the 70s. Thank you the very 70s. much. <laughs> Back in the 70s. Right. Not trying to date you, but, okay, you know, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> Uh, back in the 70s. Back in the 70s. So, so that must have been a new recruiter. He must have been thinking about the long game, I'm guessing. <laughs> I guess. He was a little bit older gentleman and just very, you know, most of the other services were very patronizing, but he took his time with me and and I really appreciate awesome. it. So that's how it got down to the Army. That's how I chose the Army because we didn't have any um, people in my family that served. Actually, both of my brothers got out of the draft. You're, you know, their numbers didn't come up. So, oh. but many of their friends did. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a... Uh... Lucky for that recruiter. You know? Right. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, what did you do while you were in? So um, when I joined, I was put into the uh, medical field in the ear, eyes, nose and throat clinic. And they later divided us up. And I was an ophthalmic technician that works with the eye surgeon. Oh, okay. So I had a wonderful job and wonderful experience. Most of the surgeons that I worked for were berry planners, which meant that they, instead of being drafted during their schooling, they paid back two years. So they were just awesome oh, wow. physicians. Yes. They wanted to be and there. I, oh, they wanted to be there. Absolutely. Hmm. And I got so much experience and so much good training in the military because I could do things that I couldn't do in the outside. Sure. You know, I wouldn't have that level. In fact, many times they took me into surgery with them and I would be their first assistant. Mm. So um, it was just immeasurable, the uh, experience. Who, while you were in, who was, give me either a best friend or uh, greatest mentor while you were in. I think it would have to be one of the ophthalmologists. His name was Sonny Higginbotham, and he took me under his wing. And just he was the one that kind of told me, you know, you can do whatever you want and would give me more and more responsibility. And I was in charge of the clinic. And I rose up to E5 very quickly while I was there. And actually, I stayed at Martin Army Hospital in Fort Benning for six years um, I was supposed to go somewhere else and they kind of put the kibosher on that and <laughs> <laughs> they had me kept there. So, um, I would say that it would have to have been him. He was a great influence on my life. Is that unusual? Like six years in the army at a, on a base? Oh, I, absolutely. Gotcha. Absolutely. That gotcha. was unheard of. Got you. Um, so you, it sounded like you were having a great time. You were at Fort Benning. Um, why get out? Good question. I ask myself that now all the time. But at that time, I decided that I wanted to go back to school, that I wanted to be able to do more for people. And I wanted to be the one that was in charge and dictate the 
the treatment protocol. So I went around the hospital and I was able, I was in a unique position that I was able to go and visit all the different specialties and kind of see what they did. And um, I came up with the idea that um, occupational therapy would be a good avenue for me. So I knew I had the GI Bill and it was a godsend. I got out and went to school on GI Bill and actually made money going to school back then, of course. Sure, I absolutely. Think. I even made money school made money going to school now when I went to night school. Right. Uh, where'd you uh, where'd you do you do your studies at? So I ended up uh, back in North Carolina at East Carolina University. It was the only right. university that had the allied health profession. So that's where I ended up going. ECU. You know, I've <laughs> I've spent a lot of time at ECU while I was in. Did never took a class there. <laughs> what? It was, uh, it was uh, I mean, every weekend, my first enlistment was going out to ECU, going out to tailgating, football games. Uh, I, I love the environment there. It was a really good school to, to visit. Absolutely. Especially as, yes, a, as a Marine. a small town. Right. Yeah. Yes. So you were at Cherry Point. I was. You know exactly yes. where I was. Absolutely. My husband, he did the um, nine months, you know, working in nine months at school and he was actually at Cherry Point in IT. So I knew it well. Gotcha. Yeah. A lot, just a lot of good memories, a lot of good tailgates there. Um, uh, what types of things do you study in that major in occupational therapy? So you have a heavy background in sciences, anatomy, gross anatomy, um, physics, And then back when I was in, uh, which was quite a few years ago, we had a high emphasis on using arts and crafts as a modality for therapeutic rehabilitation. Interesting. So, yeah. So if you had a hand injury, instead of making you open and close your hand 10 times for three sets, we might would have you building or constructing a model car that would make you do the same motion, but with a functional outcome. Very interesting. Very interesting. So you graduated. Um, yes. You, you moved to your bio says you moved to Orlando, Florida and opened up your own practice in sensory integration and pediatrics. Now I know what pediatrics are, you know, um, mm-hmm. what is sensory integration? So sensory integration, especially for the young child, you see children that cannot tolerate tags in their clothes or their socks being inside out. It's the baseline of the input of sensations that are coming into their body seems to be much lower than what a typical child would be or a person. So those little things like tags or any little seam will be highly irritating to them. Mm. So then from there, you can either get behavior that such as acting out or um, even destructive behavior. And so it's looking at what exactly is going on in this child's day and how to, what we create a sensory diet, 
you know, nowadays we're taking out more and more of the recesses and the time for children to be able to move their bodies and work them. That is so important and play is so important, but the time constraints of the school system are just not allowing for it. And so you see these children just yearning for it, you know, so... A lot of the treatment was um, evolved around that. It, very interesting. I don't think I've ever heard of that type of um, practice at all. And, and so it's it's very, very interesting. It was very rewarding, yes. I'm sure it was. Um, absolutely. I'm able to help kids like that. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, so what prompted the change in 2009? So in 2009, um, unfortunately, my husband passed away and I said, well, thank you. I said, what am, what am I going to do? And um, I had, when I had gone to Orlando, I had looked at the VA and wanted to get back into the VA and there were no openings. And so then I made this kind of detour into pediatrics and then I looked at um, Tampa here, the Tampa Center, the James A. Haley VA had an opening. And so I went for it because I missed the military and the, the camaraderie of uh, the forces and yeah. just everything about it. I missed it. And so that brought me over here to Tampa. And, and what's your official role now at Tampa and with the VA? So right now I am an occupational therapist. However, I specialize in assistive technology. And you helped develop pro- that whole program, correct? Absolutely. So, so ten ten years ago, so for developed those, the whole program. Yeah. So for those that don't don't know, what is the assisted technology program? So what we do in assistive technology. <laughs> I'm sure so, I mean I mean that's that's a loaded question. I'm sure there's a lot to yes, it. Yes, it yeah. is. There's a lot to it. But what we do is uh, we try to meet the veterans' needs depending on what they need. Uh, if they have some kind of catastrophic injury or learning disability or need some sort of adapted way to access their computers or to access their environment as easy as turning off and on a light if they can't do that. Also, we have a huge population here of patients who are diagnosed with ALS. So we are heavily involved with them, uh, especially in the communication department. I have a wonderful colleague who works with me who also developed the program. Her name is Talina Caudill. She's a speech language pathologist. So she and I make the core of the team. And then we have like driver's rehab and vision services and wheeled mobility. Those are kind of in adapted sports. They're under the umbrella of assistive technology. But Talina and myself make up the core of it. Very interesting. Um, So the reason I I reached out to you was because I saw the assistive technology program uh, in use up at at Richmond, at the Richmond VA. Um, Yes. So... It's not just in Tampa, correct? Where, where else uh, are these clinics? So what happened um, back in February of 2008, uh, the Deputy Undersecretary for Health uh, designated four assistive technology labs 
at the four major polytrauma sites. Gotcha. So that was Richmond, Tampa, Palo Alto, and Minneapolis. So those were the main sites. And we were awarded in 2009 $2.4 million to develop these programs at each site. Oh, wow. So they were really, well, what was happening is, you know, our veterans were coming back with so many traumas, you know, yeah. hence the polytrauma. Um, they just needed so much technology and technology poly, is changing. Poly, is that polytrauma meaning limbs, right? Polytrauma can be anything. It just means multiple traumas. So it could be multiple amputations. It can be a head injury or a brain injury, plus other physical injuries. So it's just multiple injuries. Got you. Got you. So a lot of polytrauma. So a lot of polytrauma coming in. So, and as we know, as you and I are sitting here talking, uh, technology is changing by the second. Absolutely. So they felt like that we needed something to help focus on that and develop it for these very, very complex patients. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Scott, who is our chief in the um, physical medicine and rehab here, he is just such a forward, out-of-the-box thinker. And it was just um, such a good uh, marriage here for us in Tampa. And we have a huge spinal cord injury program, as well as a huge polytrauma inpatient and outpatient and transitional program here. So we are one of the largest in the country. Very, very good. Um, what are some successful treatments that you've personally seen with the program? For one, this is a, a young veteran, probably in his 20s, late 20s. Um, he is actually in a wheelchair, has no movement from the neck down, and is blind. So oh, wow. right there, we have a very complex situation, and he wanted to be able to access the Internet and to be able to browse the Internet and to control his environment, music, movies, things like that. Wow. So on the market, there's what we call a dedicated environmental control unit that will control lights in a television in your hospital bed. And the way that he uses it is with a sip and puff mechanism, and it auditorily gives him cues and scans through the menu, like it might say lights, TV, a radio, and then he sips on the tube when he gets to what he wants. And that's how he controls everything in his Interesting. Home. Very interesting. It's very interesting. Yes. Um, and right now, wow. um, just today, this is so very exciting. Um, I don't know if you're aware of Steve Gleason. He's um, the football player from – Yes, Louisiana, uh, yes, right? yes, former NFL player, yeah, for the Saints. Yeah. Yeah. So he has ALS, and he probably four or five years ago went to Microsoft, and they had a hackathon at Microsoft because he wanted to be able to drive his wheelchair with his eyes because wow. right now there, there's nothing on the market that can do that. 
So the engineers got together and they came up with uh, a program still in the beta um, form. But right now, just this morning, I left a a patient. She is driving. She is diagnosed with ALS, a young woman uh, in her 40s. And um, she is driving her wheelchair with that eye gaze, with her eyes. She has no movement in her hands and legs. And she was going down the hall beautifully. And it opens up a whole new world for her and her husband. You must see some pretty, pretty um, amazing things throughout your day-to-day job with, with some of this stuff. I can't tell you. I have goosebumps. I can't tell you how much I love my job in serving our veterans and how humble our veterans are. They'll say to me, but I just served two years. I'm not really a veteran. And I'm like, but you are. And they're like, oh, I I can't do this. I, I, I can't take this. And I'm like, you're you served for this and they're just overwhelmed at what we can offer them at the VA. It's so amazing. I've worked on the outside and I can tell you by far, I am so very proud of the way that we treat our vets and what we're able to provide them with. Sounds like an amazing program. Um, It is. It is. In your bio, it says you identified an access method for spinal cord injury patients to control the Get Well Network. What does that mean? So the Get Well Network is a informational network that, you know, most people have on the TVs when they come into the hospital. You can touch the TV screen and you'll be able to access, you know, your, they usually have the internet or the channels, the TV channels. So it's, uh, it's like a, it's like an AFN for inside the hospital network. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. When the, yeah, when the get well network came, so they um, provide this for a lot of national hospitals, but when they came to the VA and they came to our spinal cord unit, they were like, Oh, they can't use their hands. And we're like, yeah, you know, so <laughs> how are they going to control this? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, they can't. So um, actually um, myself and um, the uh, biomedical engineer, uh, Mark Spafford, we were kind of put in charge of trying to figure something out. So we came up with a, um, device that's called the quad joy and it is you use sip and puff to control it so you it's like a straw and you move it around the different areas so you can navigate the whole screen and you sip when you want to click on something so Mm -hmm. you can click on tv stations you have control of the volume um all of that almost almost a similar thing that you were talking about earlier yes exactly but it's it's controlled by the mouth. Very cool. Very cool. Ursula, what is one thing that you learned in service that you applied to what you do today? I think, you know, as a 17-year-old, when you're going into service, you're very young and very naive. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest things I really learned was respect. Respect for... Um, myself, respect 
for the fellow active duty members, just and the inclusion of everyone, because it's such a diverse community in the military. And one thing I learned very quickly was that you became quite good friends with people that were there at the time, and you formed your own community. Yeah. Because you had to. Yeah, you're you're all, you're all coming from different corners of the earth, you know, the, you know of, of the country, and you're thrown into one barracks. You know? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So you got to find a way to coexist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, is there a nonprofit that, in your eyes, is is a good example for others to follow? So here we have a lot of. Uh, nonprofits that are involved with our facility, everything from the Officers Association, where they do a monthly dinner for our active duty and veterans. We have the Wounded Warriors that help out here. We have the DAV that's involved. Uh, one of the biggest uh, groups that has such a great impact on us is the Paralyzed Veterans of America, the PVA. Really? They are such an advocate. Um, yes, they even have an office in our spinal cord unit. We have over a 120-bed spinal cord unit with a long-term care part of that, and we have a specialized 10-bed vent unit for our veterans who are on ventilators. So we are highly specialized here, and the PVA is instrumental in helping us get new equipment, to get new items for them, or just helping them navigate through the mounds of paperwork that it might take for them to get their entitlements. Sure, sure. You know, it's funny. Um before my grandfather died, that was the one of his his uh, organizations that he would send money to, and mm -hmm. uh, he would always ask me, "Have you ever heard of them? Have they ever? Do you see what they're doing?" Uh, and I, you know, I, I mean, he'd ask me from the time I was eighteen, you know, while I was in the service, to you know, till I was till I got out, and I, I was like, "No, Grandpa, I, you know, I don't really deal with any of that. I've never heard of them, or, or you know, always you know, kind of just wonder." And it's you know, he passed away in September and it's, it's, it's like, I almost feel like I could tell him now, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, they put on an annual conference and I think it's in Orlando and they, this year, and they offer scholarships for the clinicians and for other people that can't afford it. But it is a wonderful conference. If you ever get a chance to go, I would highly recommend it. Okay. Because it's all the latest research, all the things that they're doing for the veterans, and it gives people a chance to bring up issues that might be challenges. And it it, it is amazing. They do a wonderful job with it. That's awesome to hear. Ursula, is there anything else that you'd like to add that I haven't asked that you think is important for our listeners to hear? I hope that they hear the passion here and it's not just from myself it's from many many team members here and 
as I said before, it's I am so proud to be part of this organization and to be able to provide for our veterans what everyone makes possible for us to be able to provide for them. And I am just truly thankful for that. There are nearly 2 million women veterans who served and deserve the best care anywhere. VA is dedicated to meeting the unique needs of all women veterans. VA offers comprehensive primary care and women's health specialty care. Women veterans who are interested in receiving care at VA should call the Women Veterans Call Center at 855-VA-WOMEN or contact the nearest VA Medical Center and ask for the Women Veterans Program Manager. Visit www.va.gov slash womenvet. I want to thank Ursula for taking the time and coming on the show and sharing her experiences. If you want to find out more about what Ursula is doing with the assistive technology program, you can find them at www.prosthetics.va.gov forward slash assistive technology forward slash index.asp. And I've been saying this about a lot of things, a lot of news releases, a lot of other things, but I can guarantee you that the assistive technology program will be a benefits breakdown in the very near future. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is Navy veteran Donald Lee McCarty. Check this out. Donald Lee McCarty was born on February 5th, 1924 in Altoona, Kansas. Along with his two brothers, he enlisted in the Navy in August of 1941 when he was 17. After being raised on a small farm, he wanted to see the world and with his parents' consent, he joined the Navy. With much excitement, he reported to basic training at Naval Station Great Lakes in Illinois. After graduating basic training, McCarty was sent to Camp Pendleton in San Diego, California. From there, he traveled to Hawaii, Egypt, Italy, Australia, and Japan, among many other countries. During his career, he served on all fronts of World War II, even including the Forgotten Front of China, Burma, and India. He also witnessed the invasion of Sicily, and recalled being attacked 35 times in four days. In his diary, he wrote, We sailed away from that place at 7 a.m., and that was one of the happiest days of my life. I never wanted to see action like that ever again. After the war ended, he boarded the USS Albemarle, Albemarle and headed to the Marshall Islands for Operation Crossroads and the observation of the atomic bomb testing on warships. The Albemarle was exposed to radiation and they were quarantined for six weeks when they returned to the U.S. McCarty was discharged from the Navy on December 6, 1946, and returned home to Kansas, taking a job at the Standard Oil Company and later the Pipefitters Union. Sadly, Donald McCarty died on July 13, 2019. He was 95. We honor your service, Donald. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just email us at podcast at va.gov. Include a short write-up and let us know why you would like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Rally Point, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can find us with the blue check mark. Thank you again for listening. 
and we will see you right here next week.